Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm Justin, and we've got a full house this evening as I'm joined by my co-host, Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hi. Henry, say hi, Henry. Hello. And Nicholas, say what's up, Nicholas. Hello. And this evening, we have a very special guest with us, writer, producer, and director of films such as Reanimator, From Beyond, Dagon, Necronomicon, and Return of the Living Dead 3, the one and only Mr. Brian Usna. Brian, how the hell are you? Hi, Justin. Hi, all. I'm doing good. That's good, man. Thanks for being here. So let's start at the beginning, Brian. Take us back in time. What sort of films, books, comics, etc. were you consuming as a kid that you would say fueled your imagination and creativity? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, I came up so long ago that I was still read, you know, horror comics like EC Comics. And I right. grew up in Latin America, mostly Panama, but also Nicaragua and Puerto Rico. And in Panama, we didn't have television for quite a long time. You had to go to a movie. I read comics. I was a big comic book guy. And the first comics I bought before I got into the superhero stuff was horror stuff. And I think that really kind of spooked me a little because they were weird. You know, they, right. they seemed, there seemed to be something wrong with them. And another thing that really kind of influenced my taste was Mad Magazine because when I first saw it, I didn't realize that it was, I didn't know what satire was. So... <laughs> So that means that you take this stuff for real, you know? Right. And it was kind of shocking to me. And, and then, of course, that's how I learned what satire and irony were. And I've always used, I tend to use a lot of irony in general, because I think that irony is kind of the way you keep two opposing thoughts at the same time. And I think from the comic book, they were fun. And so my idea was of horror was fun, too. It was, it was outlandish. It definitely disturbed me, but it was fun. And, and I used to hear, you know, ghost stories told, you know, on the street corner after dark. And, oh, wow. And, um, and back, I'm sure it was like that in the States, too. But, you know, kids would tell stories about their grandmother was dead and crawled out of the grave or somebody told them about it, you know. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of stuff really gets you, I think. Oral ghost stories, camping. I was a Boy Scout. I remember, you know, being afraid to go to my tent after, you know, we would camp out in the jungle. And then the scout leader would tell you some, you know, the story of the bloody eye or something. No. I couldn't, you know, it's just too scary to walk over to your tent after that. But when I started watching movies, first horror movie I saw when I was quite young was at a Sunday matinee, and it was the be uh, it was the creature with the Adam brain, which is basically a a zombie movie, but it's got a little sci-fi element because they put these like tarantulas into the brain of the <laughs> corpse they steal, and then they have like stitches, and it of course it's. It's drawn a lot from Frankenstein, you know. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. Now I look back on it. I always thought it was, I was, was kind of like, gee, I wish I could have been infected originally by kind of a more important horror movie, you know, <laughs> than the creature with the Adam brain. 
But, you know, and looking back, what, what was it, Richard Denning or something, either directed it or was in it or something. But looking back now, I, you know, I watched it again recently, and, you know, it's not so bad. It definitely is absolutely exploitation, you know, kind of horror thing. So that really messed, you know, that made me nauseous. I couldn't sleep and nightmares. I, I, I think I was only six years old or something, or maybe seven. And it was like, that's it. My mother said, you're never, your kids are never going back to the Sunday matinee. Because the matinee we would go to would be, you know, they'd have a Three Stooges cartoon, so like, you know, a Rocket Man serial and a double feature and, you know, some trailers. You never knew what it was going to be. She thought they shouldn't show those things to kids. And I think the, uh, of course, we went right back. And I think the next movie that really affected me, you know, that this isn't really a horror movie. It's an adventure fantasy, which I think fantasy, horror, even they're, they're, it's all on the same continuum. They intersect, you know? yeah. 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 And um, this was the seventh voyage of Sinbad. Mm. And that one really, I mean, I bet that that is a great movie. And that one really, you know, it had real monsters in it. It had the Cyclops. And I loved stop motion. And I love time lapse photography. You know, anything that can have a transformation in it really appealed to me. And, of course, the skeleton fighting. I'd never seen such a thing before that I remember night. I can still remember nightmares about that. <laughs> and then I think the thing, one thing that really, really got to me was when the... Um, princess's maid or somebody lady's maid kind of got into the urn with the big snake by the musician magician and she becomes a snake woman and that really got to me and I, I realize now it was because of the sexual aspect with the transformation and i think most most horror movies at least effective ones have a, a strong sexual element besides an element of kind of some kind of bodily fluid <laughs> Right, right. You know, they're, you know, I mean, if they don't have bodily fluids or some kind of fluids, it, then it's just a kind of a thriller. But once you add, <laughs> you know, blood or goop or slime or something, then it becomes, a, then that's kind of a horror movie. And so that one really got to me and I still love that movie. And I, of course, I watched everything that Harryhausen ever did and was even lucky enough some years ago to be at a film festival in Switzerland where we were the only Americans. So I got to have like, you know, for the whole week, I got to have all my lunches with Ray Harryhausen and talk about wow. movies, you know, that's amazing, uh, which was really, you know, and I still love those things, but I, I maybe because I saw Seven Voyages of Sinbad first, but I still think it's maybe the best one that his, that his best movie that I liked uh, the fantasy element. And then there was you know, I think the House on Haunted Hill was the movie that, that made me realize that I could be kind of scared, but just have a great time. It was, you know, I was right the right age for that kind of, you know, a William Castle movie. And I saw that, you know, like Mr. Sardonicus, which is why we, Stuart Gordon and I, cast Guy Rolfe as, as the doll maker in Dolls because, hey, he was Mr. Sardonicus. How could, how could we not use him? You know? And then there was, you know, of course, there were a lot of others. 
years. You know, the Hammer movies were coming out then, which were pretty extreme. You know, The Tingler and The Fly and all those kind of, you know, those space movies. And then not so obviously, I think a couple of movies that really kind of got to me and certainly affected. I mean, all those movies certainly affected what kind of movies I made, even though I didn't know why. And I didn't, you know, it took at one point I tried to tried to look back and think, why did I do this? Or why did I want to do this in the movie? You know, where did that come from? And mostly you, I, I've been able to trace it back a certain amount. And one of the things that one movie that would not be obvious that really, uh, really affected me was uh, the 1950, what, six version of the Ten Commandments, and which really, if you think about it, is kind of like a horror movie, a horror adventure, because it had the supernatural. It was a grand adventure. And then it had the magicians. It had the turning water into blood, staffs into snakes, a green mist that kills children. Of course, the, the water parting and all that. But and then, of course, the most impressive was when Moses is away, you know, and, you know, the commandments are being zapped into the stone. The Israelis all have this big orgy while they worship the golden calf. And even though that movie was shot, that orgy was shot so that it was a G rated. It was like for family. You know, there's nothing explicit about it in a way, but it was really orgiastic. And for a kid, I think that really affected me. And I think that's one reason why I always have this feeling that at the end of a horror movie, there should be this big orgy. <laughs> like in society, I feel like, yeah, we got to have the big orgy at the end. <laughs> that makes it a movie, you know? And so I think that, I, I really think that somehow imprinted in me. Even, I mean, it, there's always this idea at the end of, a, of any movie, there should be a big scene, right? Mm -hmm, so right. It's not, it's not that simplistic. But the, the fact that it would be an orgy type of scene, I think, is a derivation of there has to be a Big Bang ending. And, um, and <laughs> another it. one at that same time was, was Ben-Hur, which came out then, you know. And these were big, big, huge movies. And the thing that really got me with Ben-Hur was when, I forget who it was, they went down, maybe it was Ben-Hur went to his mother or somebody in the leper colony. And the lepers had this like horror makeup on. And man, that I, I know that that got to me. That was, right. you know, that was real, real horrific. But really, probably by the time I hit middle school, or we used to call it junior high, you know, I saw Psycho when it came out. And wow, that really knocked me off my rocker. That was that was too much yeah and i'm not sure i think it's a horror movie i mean sure. i think that it isn't i mean there is some blood in it not much but it was just the idea that i think it was just told so well but the idea that maybe you that something could take over your body you know it's almost like the body snatchers or something that somehow there's another person inside you possession and that that was a very scary concept to me of course now then when you start understanding what schizophrenia is it's not near as much scary fun but psycho definitely did it to me and then i rolled right into any the corman poe movies i was a big fan of those and by then i was 
I was, you know, I read any kind of ghost movie or horror movie. I watched any, you know, ghost stories and books, you know, horror books. So I was, I was pretty much into it. And I think I've always liked surrealism in art. And that's kind of a dreamlike, free associative part of your imagination. And it has a lot to do with images kind of morphing into other images, which I've always, that I think I like, I like that in horror movies when there's transformations, when things transform into something else. And taking that further, I always have like kind of optical illusions and simulacrum and the idea that when you're watching a movie, you might be able to see two different things in an image. It's harder to do, of course, in live action, but in still artwork, you can see two different images depending on how you look at it. And I think that I like that just in general, but part of it in the movies, I think that is a lot of it's kind of when you tell a story from character's point of view, if you took it from another character's point of view, it would be something else. That kind of tension or phenomenon of point of view of what's real and what's not real. You know, you know, I always wanted to do a version of, of Bram Stoker's Dracula because at the end, I love that book, by the way. I think it's really good. And at the end, the heroes go breaking into the tomb where I think Mina is the vampire. Now, I think she's got a little child she's going to eat or something or drink the blood of and they come running in and they find her and they put her down and they stake her and i always thought that somebody should come in and turn on the light and say hey what are you guys doing <laughs> well she's a vampire you see <laughs> uh, i think you'd better come with me <laughs> i think most a lot of horror movies you could almost do that too you could just you know you could go hey you know what you're actually wrong about this <laughs> you need to make that dracula <laughs> Brian, how would you say that you landed your first gig in the business? Like, how'd you get your start? Well, what I did is I got the financing for a movie. <laughs> and I appointed myself producer. That was Reanimator. I could have never gotten a job in the movies. I could have been a PA maybe, because I'd never taken a, I never took a class. I never, I, I didn't even start. I came to Hollywood, I think when I was, I mean, I moved here probably when I was 35 years old and I, I never planned or thought much about making movies for a living. I don't think I ever thought it was, that was an option. I wouldn't have known. But when I did at one point, I, I ended up with a 16 millimeter Bolex camera a wind-up one and it was because the this was in the 70s the late 70s video was coming on for tv news they were starting to carry video cameras with them and so that so all the news used to be done on 60 millimeter, millimeter bolex is a hundred foot roll and that's what that was portable without sound you know it's not they wouldn't record sound unless they had the sound guy and so they dumped all the the 16 millimeter bolexes in favor of some probably pretty poor video resolution that's because they didn't have to send it to the lab you could just shoot and take it to the station and so i had a bolex and i started shooting and at that time i had an art supply store and was also like having shows and selling my paintings you know right and got this camera and i started and i also did photography and I had a dark room and I started shooting with this camera and I just kind of got into it. I, when I was in high school, I made movies with a friend on a eight millimeter, you know, a super eight. And we would only, all we would do is special effects pretty much. Maybe some sort of specious story narrative, but we would just try to see what you could do with a camera to make something happen that couldn't happen. And, but even then I never thought, oh, 
I want to make movies. I don't know. How could you? I don't know. And so when I got that Bolex, I started shooting. But by then, I had been to college, and I'd been on my own. And, and I had watched, you know, in the 60s, everything was like the new wave, the Nouvelle Vague. So it was all these European movies that were the most important. And there was a, art movies were like super entertaining back then, and they were important. And when I got that 16 millimeter, I started, I was shooting, I lived out on a kind of this, I don't know, a very kind of low rent house in the middle of a lot of acreage, woods and fields and on a river. And I had a lot of animals. I had them for purpose, like I had, you know, a cat for the mice and dogs to keep people away. <laughs> I had I had goats to keep the snakes away. So I had like about 15 goats because goats will actually keep, you know, they'll kill snakes. And there's a lot of poisonous snakes on the property I lived in. This was in North Carolina. So I had all these goats and I'd shoot them with the camera and the Billy I would I had a rope on him with a tire because if I couldn't see then he couldn't get through the rickety fence and get into my house because he'd bring all the goats and they'd all get inside the house you know <laughs> and um, <laughs> luckily their poop is in little pellets <laughs> Right. But I'd shoot this goat and then I'd watch it on my projector and it looked like Bergman to me. <laughs> you know, I was going, wow, this is like really great. And so then I thought I would try making a movie. And so I started this process and I made a short film and I edited it. I had got an editor and we, we set up editing in my, I had an art supply store and I got really swept up in the whole thing. I just loved the process of it. Finished it, got the sound mix. It was like a 20 minute movie or something and and then I transferred it to VHS because VHS had just come in and I showed it to my friends and then for the first time I realized that it was really bad that you know <laughs> as long as I never showed it to anybody who wasn't a part of making it it just seemed it would just seem great it seemed just really good and enjoyed the hell out of it but once I watched it with other people I could feel it that, that it was you know they were just struggling to say something nice about it and that kind of so then kind of like an idiot instead of like going okay let's try again i thought well i'll just expand this into a feature <laughs> so i took something that didn't work in the first place and then you know i'd write some um, some new scenes and then on the weekend we'd shoot it and the next week we would edit it and then the next week i'd write to it. so i kept doing this till we had like a 70 minute movie or something and it still wasn't any good but it was a feature, you know. By that time, I had started reading. And I, had, of course, I had to read books about how do you make a movie and the movie business and stuff. And I started reading Weekly Variety. I was living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina at that time. And so I started getting, because I thought I'd had a lot of different jobs and stuff and different ways to make money. And I, shooting the movie, I thought, wow, it would just be great if you could make a living doing this, because it was just, it was just more interesting interesting than other things and you there were so many different aspects to it you know there's the sort of the writing and the preparation there's a whole business to it and then there's the shooting and there's actors and there's sets and there's building and there's then you have to edit it and you you know and you got sound and it's and then there's a whole business to trying to sell it and so I really liked that I thought it was I just loved the, the process so then I thought that I would try to do it kind of good well to do it well to make it a kind of a business and I had already learned and back then even the guys 
guys I got to help me were from the department from UNC, the Department of Radio, Television, and Motion Pictures. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have a film, but you know, now of course everybody in the world wants to be a, a film director. There's of course forget online, but even at the film schools, it's just everybody has a film school. It's a big business just to teach people, and people are really savvy. But when I started, I started actually when I wrote the script for that short, which I based on a short story by a friend of mine. I was, was actually living in a t in a re renovated tobacco barn. I had just gotten a VHS player. I, I was the first one of anybody I knew that had one. And I had a tape you could record. You couldn't get any pre-recorded. You couldn't get anything on tape except, I think, porno. And they were like 80 bucks. Wow. For, oh, yeah. 80 back then. You know, and for 20 bucks, you could get like a 60-minute recordable tape and or 90 minutes. So I forget how much, maybe a hundred. On VHS, I think they went up to 120. On beta, I think I first got a beta man. And I spent Christmas that year alone. And I watched TV and recorded two movies. And one of them was The Killing by Kubrick, about the big heist of the, of the racetrack. Oh, yeah. And the other one was The Spiral Staircase with Dorothy McGuire and George Brent. And all of a sudden, I could go backwards and forwards on the scene. I could watch something. You could never do that before. You usually, I grew up, you went to see a movie, and you could go back. Like, I remember, I think, on House on Haunted Hill, I watched it three times in a row. Because they didn't kick you out back then, anyway. And you came in whenever you wanted. I'm sure you've heard the, say, the phrase, this is where I came in. Like, it's time for me to go. Right. Well, that actually was because people would go to the movies and they would just show, the, the show would just keep going. They never, like, stopped, turned on the lights and got everybody out of there. They just kept showing. And a long time ago, they also showed, people didn't all have televisions and they showed newsreels and, you know, a lot of short subjects and stuff. And then the feature and you didn't necessarily come to the movie when it started and you would stay until where you came in. So right. Say, oh, this is where I came in. I'm going out. As a matter of fact, Psycho was famous, and they did this where I saw it. I was I lived in Puerto Rico at that time. They one of the main billing elements of Psycho was that you have you, nobody let in after it started. Couldn't go in after it started, right. and that was a big deal because people would go in whenever. So that was um, that was a, a big deal. But then when you went to the movie, you know you could go see it again, go to the theater again and see it, but you couldn't control the viewing right. and so you had it in your mind and it was 20 30 years before they would show the movies on cinemax which was i think the first major cable company that cinemax and hbo would actually cinemax would show movies but you know not many and then video came in and then video that's what i was experiencing i was able to go back and forth on these scenes and all of a sudden i got i could see the shot because when i would go see movies i wouldn't see the editing i would just see the movie you're too caught yeah, up in the I story didn't. to analyze it i didn't see it and also i'm sure if somebody had asked me i would have figured that the actors invented their own lines i mean <laughs> if you don't know yeah. you know it's like eating eating food you know how did they make it you're a kid you eat ice cream how did they make that ice cream what do you know exactly you know you like it and i think that but once I saw, was able to use my Betamax, I saw the scenes and I started understanding how it was constructed. That's when I wrote that short film. And then with video, of course, everything changed. And of course, now with internet and YouTube and streaming, I mean, people watch, they like a movie, they watch it 20 
time. You can yep. look at whenever you want. You stop when you want. You do what you want. And you can, you know, go on YouTube and people will tell you what they think about it and they'll <laughs> analyze it. And there's like a million critics out there to interpret the movie for you. And there's a million other videos to tell you how to make the movie and or how they made them. So it's hard to it's hard to understand a kind of pre kind of um, streaming world or pre-video world. I was just going to say, but you know, there's danger to streaming into the into internet. There's a there's a certain magic that gets lost to film now, I think, compared, you know, even as a kid going and picking up a VHS tape, sure, you can kind of rewind and rewatch something again, but now you have 500,000 sources that can tell you how it was designed, how it was made, you know, the theory behind it, but there's still a magic to going to the theater for the first time and watching a film and not having a YouTube video accompanying it. So I just wanted to chime in on that. Yeah, no, I, I, definitely, you know, it's kind of like there's a magic to a woodcut print, mm -hmm. you know? Yes, if definitely. You like images, you know, there's probably a point in time in history when a woodcut was quite a cutting edge print. And now it's kind of an artist, artisanal type of thing. And there certainly is a magic to it because of the process and the wood itself and the ink become part of the message. And I think it's the same as a movie poster. I like the old posters. During the 80s, the posters quit being screen printed. The poster, movie posters used to be, or what they call one sheet, used to be printed on a four color screen printing process. Posters and the cover art just on the VHS just takes a loan. I mean, my mom ran a video store when I was in kindergarten and I always go to the horror section because that's where the best covers were. <laughs> well, that's what sold it. I mean, sometimes yeah. you, sometimes the cover art was better than the film, but yeah. you had your, your imagination yeah. already ignited. And even, you know, some of them were even embossed, you know, it's just like horror novels, mm -hmm. you know, the covers of the books are worlds better <laughs> than the content of the words inside, you know, but just, you know, you look at those covers and you're like, oh, I've got to see that. Boom. Draws you right in there. I kind of disagree. I, I, I agree with you on a point, Henry, but then, then I also kind of disagree because like wood burning you know now everybody has the tools to create this magic and a lot of people are going for it for some people it works for some people it doesn't it's just like just like making a movie for some people it works for some people it doesn't but now everybody has the chance to in my hand i have a professional grade camera and i can go shoot a movie if i want i want to <laughs> <laughs> i haven't written it yet but you know, that's a whole other well, story see, that's, well, see, that's the problem that's the problem so you see i have some really good vellum paper and i've got the same pencils and charcoal and brushes that da Vinci had. I've got all the tools that da Vinci had. So I'm going to do that. Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> you can have the same camera that Hitchcock had. You can have that. That's the thing about the process and the, the, the means of recording audiovisual narratives is that you can record on your iPhone and you can get after effects and you can get final cut pro and all those things and you can make a movie without having one professional involved the first movie i made i was the only non-professional of everybody 
<laughs> and Stuart Gordon was a first-time director, but he had been a theatric, he had been a theater director for 10 years making his living. He was a first-time film director. Right. And I think that's what surprised people was to see this kind of outlandish full-on horror movie, like a real professional direction. We're, we weren't used to that. Well, you probably, obviously you were taking chances throughout your films, but you had to be a bit more purposeful because, man, that film stock was expensive even, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You can't just roll it. You can't just, as a matter of fact, I think of all the movies I've made, I think only two or three of them were not shot on 35. And the reason for that was because we were lower budget and you couldn't afford good digital stuff. There's a point at which digit to do good in CGI, forget it. You know, you end up with crap. You couldn't do Jurassic Park and you still can on a low budget. You shouldn't try to make creatures out of digital. It's got awful. Unless you have a lot of money, you're better off with puppets and, and use the digital to enhance, to erase. There's so many things digital can do and everything ends up being digital now. And yes, there is a difference between something that was shot on a digital camera and then processed totally digitally and projected digitally. Then there is a 35 millimeter production that is also posted on 35 and projected. But I'll tell you that the, the idea that the 35 millimeter was so superior, yeah, maybe at the high end. <laughs> But in general, projecting 35, it was all, you know, they get scratched up. And the unless you're in Hollywood Boulevard or Westwood, the theaters had, you know, bulbs that were dimming and it's real expensive to replace them. So you get dark images. The prints, except for the show prints that they would have at the big first run movie palaces, you go out of town and you're, you're poor. They, you know, the prints are poor. And the prints get moved around and they get all scratched up by, and then they have edits in them. So, yes, there is something great about 35 millimeter. But, you know, I remember right down very close to me here where I live is the Egyptian theater on Hollywood Boulevard. And it's become the, the American Cinematheque. So they kind of renovated it, you know, made it like first class sound and everything they just do program screening and i remember going to king kong screening of king kong and it was like touted as 35 millimeters and i had seen king kong on 35 millimeter when it was reissued in the 70s i think that's the first time i saw it i think i saw it on tv first television late night and i um and then I saw, got to see it on the film. And now I thought I was going to go see it again at the Cinematheque, right? And the print was crap, you know, and it was scratchy. And, and you and now, you know, I looked at it and I thought, well, screw this. Show me a DCP. Right. I'm not interested in that. I don't want to watch some crap because it's 30. Oh, it's 35. Well, big deal. At your point between the difference of, of digital effects versus practical, give me a dude off screen blowing corn syrup blood for a hose any day <laughs> as opposed to yeah. CGI blood spatter. You know? yeah. 
there's an organic quality to practical effects. I think that I've never seen a digital film. I mean, you know, with the occasion of, you know, digital effects used to, to remove cabling and lines for scenes, but I've never seen, and unless I've been fooled, I've never seen a film where heavy digital effects have been used that have ever been able to match the organic feel of practical effects. Well, you could do it with a lot of money, but, you know, there are movies that you couldn't do without digital effects. And I would, for example, say that Starship Troopers, which is kind of quite a while ago, and what's the name of the guy who did the effects for that? He was he was a stop-motion guy. I and think then, Nick's on it. Do we have do we have an investigator? Nick online? is investigating. Starship. <laughs> that's the great thing. That's the great thing about the internet. Yeah. Oh, media and all that. Well, digital effects certainly. I mean, you couldn't have giant robots or Godzilla like you do today without it. But sometimes I I still like the campiness of the man in the suit as he tromps around. There is campy, but there's reasons to do it beyond campy that are there's I'll, I'll give you an example like with miniatures it's really hard to match the cityscape of the crow if you did it digitally that was built miniature yeah and man it looks good and i don't think it's a style there's a is it reality no but i love freshness freshness which was a 20s type thing during that era the, the idea of expressionism is that the image should look like how you want the viewer to feel, not some version of, which is impossible, but some version of kind of objective reality, which of course you could, there's a reality that's recorded by taking a video or a picture or something. But when you're making a movie, there is this idea that movies should reflect reality. And in fact, the when movies originated, there were two streams, two paths that, that film went on. One was the Lumiere brothers. Both of these are in France, by the way. And the other was the Meliers. And Meliers, he's the guy that did the Moon's Eye. Yeah. So he started with a theater putting on magic, right? Special effect in a live action theater. And then he took that and started shooting it, shooting things because you could do so many more tricks on film that you than you can do live. And then the Lumiers, they, what they would do is go like record people coming out of the factory, real life thing. And movies kind of went in those two directions. And the critics tended to, this is my own opinion, of course, but I've spent time thinking about it. So <laughs> the critics, and of course, I've, I've read, I've watched all these movies and I have read about them and I have read about movie criticism. I didn't do this until I was actually making movies and I was irritated because people tended to depreciate horror movies and I like horror movies and I like fantasy movies and I like sci-fi and I like all these genres that are considered to be kind of the lower order of things and I didn't like the idea of having to defend that. I And I looked into the, I read some books about movie criticism, the original ones. I mean, now movie criticism is basically everybody. <laughs> And it's all very political. You know, there is no real, not really much about formal elements <laughs> or about what it's representing. Back when, you know, back mostly in the 20th century, you would see that movie criticism had to, you know, they tended to feel like film should be a window on the world. Like what you should be doing is looking at the world without 
making a statement about it, and that actually the best, the most pure film would actually also include the people making the film. And that's why there's a famous silent movie called The Cameraman or something, or The City, I forget what it is. But you'd always see them in a mirror, or you'd see them shooting it. And the movies would not have much narrative. And the idea was is that there was some sort of higher version of what film was. And this, but on the other end, what people liked to see was stories and entertainment. They liked to go to the carnival. They didn't want to be, the window on the world cinema kind of went more towards things, you know, dealing with serious topics and all this. Well, I knew from a very young age that I love all kinds of movies. I love everything. But most genres, they've got to be real good movies for me to like them. A romantic comedy, a, a, a drama, you know, these things, I can really get off on them, but, but they've got to be really good quality versions. But if it's a horror movie or a fantasy movie, I'll watch the crap too. And I enjoy <laughs> Out of it. And that's how all I know. day. Well, that's how I know that that's what I like because that's the genre I like because I like the bad. Whereas other genres, I love the good stuff, but I'm not. I don't have the patience for the not so good stuff. There's nothing worse than a bad comedy. Well, that's a, you know I love comedy, and actually, when I was going to place all my money on red or black, one of them was horror, and the other one was comedy. When it got to the, of course, I trusted in Stuart Gordon ultimately, but also. When I looked at the comedy, I thought, man, if this isn't funny, I'm going to lose because I was borrowing money and guaranteeing interest personally. So if the movie didn't work, I would be in hawk. And I had two kids all, already at that time. So it was like I thought with horror, one, I just felt more comfortable with it. I just felt like like I know I, I just feel like I'm more I kind of have an opinion about horror and I know kind of the feeling that I'm trying to get. And also I, I did very consciously before shooting Reanimator think that I thought, you know, if the movie stinks, I'm going to damn well make sure it's very exploitative and very kind of strong because I know that I would then watch it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> If it, even if it's not good, you know, of course, luckily, uh, luckily it was great and all that. But that's also the, the and that's one reason I like Stuart Gordon is because even in his plays, he always wanted to push the boundaries a little, a lot. But the plays he did were not all horror or anything. I mean, he did all kinds of stuff. And I, I remember Dennis Paoli I just visited him just not so many years ago. He said, you know, I always tell people that Stuart and I, we would have done anything, but you wanted to do horror. <laughs> Which isn't to say that Stewart isn't a real horror fan or that Dennis Paoli didn't have a whole career teaching at Hunter College in New York, Gothic romanticism. So it's not like, I mean, Dennis was a, he was teaching Poe and all that kind of stuff which is pretty horror. It's one of the origins of horror. Stewart certainly, hey, he's, he's the guy that with Dennis and William Norris, they had already written a pilot for a TV series based on Reanimator when I met Stewart. And that's what he said, hey, we could do this thing based on Reanimator. And I said, yeah, but I'm not into TV. Because back then, TV was like CBS, ABC. I wanted to make like The Pit and the Pendulum. I wanted to make The Tingler. 
you know, I wanted to make Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist. I wasn't interested in making whatever was on TV. Of course, now cable series are probably better than movies. I was watching an interview of yours recently, and you were talking about how films usually reflect the times in which they were conceived. And you were referencing uh, Lon Chaney's films in the 20s being based on the aftermath of World War One. What I want to ask you is what sort of films do you see coming from the pandemic and take us through what some of your films from the 80s like Reanimator and society we're reflecting? Well, I don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. It may end up, the Walking Dead stuff, you know, that's sort of pre-pandemic. In my book, the way I look at horror movie history is I think the modern horror movie era started with Night of the Living Dead. And I I was I watched horror movies. I mean, Night of the Living Dead, I think, was 69, right? I mean, that was the art movie era and all that. It was the era of Bonnie and Clyde. It was, you know, wild in the streets. I mean, it was like upheaval in, in the U.S. the way it is kind of now. You didn't know whether it was going to hold together or not. Things were going to go absolutely bananas. But the, and in the 60s, the horror, of course, I love all the, I love the Corman stuff in the 60s. There was a lot of horror. And even, believe it or not, I used to see Herschel Gordon Lewis at the drive-in. You know, I mean, that's wow. really, a, you know, <laughs> there was always horror, not necessarily in the mainstream, not necessarily in the big movie theaters. But Night of the Living Dead, it's not like there hadn't been a lot of horror type, mo- uh, zombie type movies, but that was different for some reason. I mean, it was almost like an art movie in a way, you know, with the kind of black and white style. And it was kind of more explicit. And it also had a, it it had this opening that I wasn't ready for. The movie scared me. And I was already 18 years old or something, 19 years 19 years old and it was like got me now it might have been all that hash that i smoked but I, don't, <laughs> I was a i was a hippie you know so we did that's that great stuff. and but it was like wow they got to the cemetery he says oh he's gonna get you and by god he was like gonna get her you know it was like right from the, and movies didn't work that way usually they usually took their good time to get something going in the first act. And now, my God, horror movies, they take an hour to, before anything happens. I don't know why this is happening, but somehow the horror movies today have to really kind of cover a lot of ground before they have something go on. But Night of the Living Dead, boom, the brother gets grabbed. Boom, she's in the car crashing out. You know, they're in the house. It, you know, it was just like, and then they had people chewing on on lamb bones or something (laughs) and it was like oh my god it's cannibalism (laughs) and i and i think that it was really scary and it also had this whole modern element to it which was very much a part of the times because this was the late 60s we're all coming off of the, the, the vietnam war and the civil rights voting act and all of a sudden the guy who survives is a black guy that we hadn't seen before any more than on alien i remember watching alien and what the girl ends up being the kid at the end well that had never happened before there was always the kid that was at the end kind of struggling with it okay they put her in pants <laughs> <laughs> they did make their you know, 
but we didn't know who the hero was of Alien at the beginning. There's this whole group of people that was sort of the anti-Star Wars movie because the spaceships weren't all spanking clean and it was kind of grungy and the people were all worried about how much they're going to get paid and all this like mundane stuff. And then the female character ends up being the one to, to fight the monster. Well, in Night of the Living Dead, it was kind of like, who's going to be the guy at the end? And it turns out to be a black guy. Now, I'm not going to get into the fact that that character was 100% wrong throughout the whole movie. He's the guy that said, arguing with the bigot guy, we're not going to the basement. Remember, the, the bigot guy was saying, we got to hide in the basement. And the black guy said, no, 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 we can't hide in the basement. Well, at the end, he hides in the basement and he survived. So he was completely wrong. But when he gets shot, it was almost like a social commentary. But, and it wasn't obvious or anything, but it was kind of, but, and, I, and I actually did have the chance to kind of discuss this with George Romero at one time. And I and I've talked to other people that were in that movie. I don't think that was at all. It wasn't like, oh, we've got this statement to make it bullshit. They were just representing the world they lived in. And when what's his name, the great effects guy, Tom Savini, is playing the sheriff at the end with that was kind of a cultural statement. But it wasn't it wasn't the way people make movies today where they, they have this social statement that they're making that is kind of like front and center and you're lucky if you see the horror movie behind it. It was just because they were having fun. That's all. You know, it was like, yeah, what would a bunch of redneck guys with guns do if there was a, a bunch of zombies running around? They'd get out there and shoot the shit out of them, you know? <laughs> so, so I think it just represented the time, but it wasn't overtly messaging. And it didn't get that way for Romero until he made Day of the Dead. Because even Dawn of the Dead was just a kind of a big romp that was edited three different ways, you know. But by the time the critics had kind of really sounded off about how it was taking place in a mall. And, you know, the thing about it, and then Romero started believing that he was making social statements. And, you know, Day of the Dead ended up being all social statement except for the effect scenes that Tom Savini kind of shot. But I think that that was a Night of the Living Dead, I think, was the one that started it. And who would have guessed that it would have ended up with Walking Dead? Who would have thought? And it didn't, you know, what I loved about a Night of the Living Dead and especially Dawn of the Dead, I loved the, the tagline on the poster for Dawn of the Dead. And it said, when hell is full, the dead will walk the earth. That's a horror movie. You know? It's a potent tagline. It's not, hey, your neighbor's sick and he's going to give it to you you better kill him that's the modern zombie and it reached you know it's really started with 28 days later i think but i always believed that even on night of the living dead and it's not in the text at all was that if you got bitten by a zombie you would turn into one it's not in the movie and it's not in the sequel well in the sequel it kind of is but they said it's when hell when hell is full and I love that idea. I love the idea that the bad shit that people, that <laughs> mankind does is going to fill up hell and then we're going to be in hell. I don't know. There's something very macabre about that. For sure. I don't think that a movie like Night of the Living Dead will work today. Night of the Living Dead didn't exist and we tried to make it today. I think that films like that work because they unconsciously reflect the period of time they're made in instead of being a in-your-face, this is what we're, what we're talking about. This is what this film is about. The thing about those movies that always seemed to hit hardest was the impartialness of the horror 
anyone could be affected by it. No one was protected from it. You know, it comes to all of us at the end. And I think that was a very powerful point of a lot of those films. And Night of the Living Dead, it was kind of inspired by I Am Legend, Matheson kind of novella. And I think that uh, Romero got hammered so much about that that he almost started accepting that he was doing a I Am Legend kind of takeoff, which I don't agree with. He even told me that, that he said, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, he's thinking of it. I think that was like being beaten up a little bit by the critics. I Am Legend, if you've ever read the book, it's about vampires. And of course, it's about a survivor. And it follows the vampire rule, which is they don't come out in the daytime. And of course, we know that Anne Rice, who was the, I think Anne Rice was the, with Interview with the Vampire, is the beginning of the modern vampire kind of mythology. Up until Anne Rice, it was basically Bram Stoker in mostly watered-down type of versions. In my book, there's never been a better vampire movie than, um, or and Dracula movie than Nosferatu, which is a pretty pathetic thing when you think about it. That how many, they say that Dracula and vampires are the most made, the character most made into film, and they're almost all not good. True. Why not? <laughs> and the first one, Nosferatu, which they got sued for, for ripping off Bram Stoker, that's still the best one. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of an odd problem. But Anne Rice came in and she kind of cleared the field a little bit and gave them a whole new kind of gave them these sort of weird powers and this idea that they could stay. You know, whenever you got turned into a vampire, that's the age you would always be. So she had a kid and the Bram Stoker stuff. They did turn into wolves and bats and they could be a mist and everything. But it became, you know, it wasn't, we kind of didn't really want to read that part because it was didn't quite fit our modern sensibilities. But with Anne Rice, she made this sort of superpowers that the vampires have kind of a little bit, maybe that could be. They could just get there real quick or something. But the greatest, and of course she added the whole existential, you know, kind of the point of view of the vampire. Mm -hmm. You know, in Bram Stoker, the vampire is just sort of this kind of, you know, kind of malevolent, hungry creature. But with Anne Rice, the vampire became, had to deal with the fact, sort of immortality, you know. Woe is me. Yeah, I'm going to live forever. I got to keep eating people, which isn't that much of a stretch. And since we don't have any problem at all with eating cows and, and whatever, you know, we have no problem with that. It's just that people we don't want to do. <laughs> that's, a, that's a step too far. That's a mammal too far. But the greatest thing about Anne Rice is that she showed that when the hero of Interview with the Vampire, at one point he can't find any vampires in New Orleans for some reason, right? In the movies and books, usually they're all over the place. <laughs> but he goes to Europe looking for them, to the old country, and he finds them in the graveyard, but they're eating like dead corpses. They're ghouls. You know, I think the original ghouls are like kind of flesh eaters. And but so they're in the graveyards and what they basically are is zombies. They live right. forever and they eat dead flesh or live flesh if they can get it. And they're pretty disgusting. <laughs> 
until she gets to Paris and finds the gay theater where those creatures have made a culture and they're very, they have taste. They only take the blood, not all this other stuff. And so I think that's the real key to Anne Rice is she shows us that the vampire and the zombie are on the same continuum, just like I Am Legend and George Romero. To the extent that George Romero is influenced by I Am Legend, I Am Legend is a vampire thing. But George Romero made it a living dead. The vampires in I Am Legend, they suck the blood. The, vamp the zombies, the living dead in, I in Night Of, they chew the whole flesh. I tried to kind of cross the two and return to Living Dead 3 by one, making the main character a zombie, which is uh, Anne Rice trick with the vampires. So like, let's make the vampire the main character. And secondly, showing that except in, in the Return of Living Dead version, I was trying to be kind of give credence to both the, it's two antecedents. One was George Romero's Night of the Living Dead and the other was Dan O'Bannon's Return of Living Dead. And in O'Bannon's, they ate brain. And the studio that hired me said it had to have brain eating. So I had to come up with a some kind of scheme to, that would justify brain eating and also justify flesh eating, which Dan O'Bannon had. So the, where what I decided was that what they were trying to do, they're dying, so their nerves are dying. That's the first thing that would die. And so they needed to be, they're trying to get the, the, the nerves, not the, not the muscle. Right. So that's my interpretation. Not And then all the main nerves are up here. So let's eat the brain. That's much <laughs> eating brains is EC comic. It's a joke. It's pulp horror, and that's exactly. what Dan was making with Return of Living Dead. He's the guy that showed everybody how to make an EC comic on film. Until then, what we got was creep show and god awful, God knows what else. <laughs> it was like, oh, how do you make a comic into a movie? Oh, well, first you start with a comic book, and you have the pages flipping, and then you have a frame, and the frame's very empty with sort of, you know, not a lot of very flat colors because that's the way they used to print comic books on four four color printing and dan o'bannon said bullshit what you do is do ec comic and ec comics always had well it was always infidelity a lot there was a lot of blood and they were eating they were always eating brains and cutting off heads and you know all this kind of stuff and i think the absolute pedal to the metal exploitation of return to living dead without it there would have never been tales from the crypt joel silver didn't invent that that was dan o'bannon and everybody and we saw oh that's that's how you do it but he put in and the zombies ran around they didn't lumber so i think that that he kind of broke from the idea he did the brain eating that's a tough thing to do and he did of course the gas which he made a joke out of by saying it was kind of marijuana eradication gone amok. <laughs> While we're on the subject of the undead, Brian, your installment, uh, Return to Living Dead 3, there's a lot less humor than the first two installments. Yours is a bit more gnarly and gritty. Was that a conscious effort on your part? You know, I'm not sure why, but usually I tend to put a lot of irony in any movie I do. It's my reflex reaction. And normally I don't shirk from sequels, I guess because I just never thought that I always thought, hey, I get a chance to make a movie. What the heck? And if it's a sequel to something that I like, I feel kind of like a, like it's an opportunity. Not that I don't think that I 
have such original ideas and but I could interpret it and I've done a bunch of them and some generally I try to be real true to it but for some reason with Return of the Living Dead 3 I had I thought that what I wanted to do was to make the main character a zombie and the reason was there's a couple reasons but one was that I thought that all the zombie stories had already been told <laughs> this was mm-hmm. 1990 right <laughs> and that, how do you make it different? And I thought, well, if you make the main character a zombie, you're already going to have different, a sort of an original approach to a zombie movie. Secondly, I had made Bride of Reanimator, and I didn't bring the bride in until like the third act. And when I watched the movie, I thought, well, that's the best character. Why did I, <laughs> why did I follow this Bride of Frankenstein routine of, of bringing it in at the end, and then she doesn't have any she just doesn't have much to do. And so I thought, well, I'll just do Return of the Living Dead 3. It's going to be the bride all the way through. You know, it's going to be about this character. And that was, and so that was part of it. The other side of it was that I really like Return of the Living Dead. And I, of course, really like Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. And I know that, that the rights to the name Living Dead went with the writer, not with Romero. And so he had sold it to this guy Wolf, I forget his first name. And this guy had licensed the right to Trimark Pictures. I had been working at that time with Trimark on a Warlock 2. See, I'm always in on the <laughs> on the sequel. And we were working up this story for Warlock 2. And then they asked me if I would do Return of the Living Dead 3, because the second one, the first one was a big hit for good reason. And the second one that was a bit of a misfire because a number of reasons. And um, one was that I don't think that the director was really on board with it. And he was and imposed upon him. The movie was financed by Japanese financing. And they insisted that he used the same characters from the first one, characters who had already been killed, also actors. So it had kind of a weird beginning. Hmm. And then it was a bit for, I don't, it didn't work. And so it really lowered the value of it. So Trimark got a hold of it. And they didn't really, I was really, really interested in doing it. And I asked them what was the requirement because we didn't have a story or anything. It was just a title. Terrible title. I'm sorry that movie doesn't have its own title. I think that really hurt it, by the way. But they, I said, what are, your, what are the requirements? What elements have to be in there? I said, do, I, do the characters from the first movie have to be in the movie? They said, no. Does it have to be funny? They said no. And I said, because, you know, Night of the Living Dead isn't funny. I felt like I was making, I was making the second sequel to an alternate sequel to a movie <laughs> classic. <laughs> That's that's a good way to put it. The alternate sequel was Return of Living Dead. And I was doing the second sequel to that. I felt like I had to service both Dan and George Romero. And they were different sensibilities. George Romero has never been funny. There is irony in George Romero, especially with Tom Savini's scenes, you know, when he, you know, on Day of the Dead, it's a pretty unironic and unhumorous movie, except when Tom Savino would 
cut off a zombie's head and it would come flopping around in front of the camera and sticking out its tongue or something, you know, and you'd go, yeah, that's fun. So they said, no, they didn't care if it was, there, if it was humorous. And I said, well, what is required? And they said, well, you got to have the trioxin gas and you've got to have brain eating and that's it. And so I tr the trioxin gas is easy because even George Romero in the Night of the Living Dead indicated that it could have been something that was brought down from space. We didn't know why, right? It could be anything. So the fact that Dan O'Mannon made it a gas, which was actually John Russo. John Russo wrote a book called Return of the Living Dead, and he had the trioxin gas in that too. But the idea that it was a gas, you know, in Dawn of the Dead, they don't say why this is happening, and nor do they in Day of the Dead. It just worked, just like with I Am Legend. It never told you how it all started. That wasn't the point. Yeah, you're already there, and you know, a place in one night, you can't be doing that. But anyway, so luckily, when we took pitches from writers, one of the writers they sent over was John Penny, and he had a great take on it, which is called a, sort of a Romeo and Juliet story. I always presented first that the pitches had to be, the main character had to be a zombie. I didn't want to do just someone running around being attacked. And then, but he had this great idea. He had this great opening scene where it was in a medical research lab where they had the gas and they were trying to make these kind of bullets that would freeze the zombies once they exposed them to the gas and the with the ultimate goal of making soldiers of a, an army of undead. And I thought that was great because it also had a kind of a sci-fi element to it. And we and so with John, we developed the movie and basically what I was most interested in was how Julie would react to realizing that she was a zombie, which is basically Dan already had it in um, in Return of Living Dead with those. Remember, what's the name of the guy Freddy. that worked? Freddy. In, you need a medical, yeah. And he was going, hey, are we, you know, what's wrong with us? You know? <laughs> uh, and you think, wow, that's pretty bad, you know. Every zombie movie has this scene where they say, oh, kill me, kill me, don't let me become a monster, you know. But they don't really show them, it's almost like it's a con it's a conceptual thing. Right. Oh, I don't want to become bad, kill me. <laughs> but they don't really play out the, what it would actually be like to have that happen to you. You kind of just touched on this movie, uh, well, you were working on the sequel you just mentioned but your executive producer on one of my favorite movies growing up which is warlock so i just got to ask you no we're number two number two not number one. Oh, you did work on number one though correct as well i don't think so no. you, you were not executive producer on the well, first I, know warlock? That, I think it was on warlock two i'm not i know i for a while, people used to bring me DVDs to sign, and I think it was Warlock too. And they would, and I'd say, you know, I didn't do that. Movie, so <laughs> why are you asking me for this? And then I finally, years and years went by, and I looked it up on YouTube, I think, to look at the opening credits, and there I was. And You're I on there. Going back through my back through, you know, I keep, I keep like, you know, like a daily journal where I have all my appointments and make notes on my meetings and stuff, and even back. It goes back to where I did it in pencil, I mean, in pen. And then I realized, oh, yeah, I actually, because I found some, I worked on the story. I was going to direct it, right? And I actually had worked on the story. And when they, when I moved over, when I just went to do Return of Living Dead 3, I guess they gave me the credit of executive producer <laughs> for the work I had done, you know. <laughs> 
Well, you, know, you work on so many story. You work on so many stories and stuff that either you most of them don't get made, and a lot of things you work on do get made. But maybe you are, you know, even the dentist. At one point, I wasn't going to do it. I, I bailed on it because it was. I had worked on it. I was going to direct it, and then I I got a um, during that time I was making Necronomicon, and that project gave rise to Crying Freeman, which nobody knows about because it was never re- released here, but it's really a great movie by Christoph Gans, his first feature. Could be, well, one of the first animes, one of the first mangas made into a you did the Giver movie. Well, that was the first, first. One, actually. Yeah. That was, and actually, I think that I think that is actually the first anime ever is. made. Yeah, yeah, into yeah. A, a movie. And I almost did Devil Man, which I really regret not having. That done. would have been amazing. But you did Faust, which is close. Well, that's not anime, but it's well, sort of like. But still, it's 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 <laughs> as close as you can get without doing Devil Man. I think. Yeah, in a way, in a way. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, when I saw that Giver poster right behind you, that was like my, probably a little inappropriate for me as a kid, but that was like one of my favorite movies. I picked up the manga years later, and the manga is really good. And I don't know if the Giver gets enough credit, but it's a really great adaptation, of, at least for American audiences. Yeah, it's really odd, the Giver. I thought I, was, I thought every now and again I would do a movie, and I think this one's going to make me rich. This I've got it now, you know. You know, we with Giver, you probably never saw this. This is how we tried to sell it to the studios. We made these. Oh, that's badass. <laughs> and then we showed all the. So you see, we showed who all the characters were, and then if you turned it, you'd see who they became. Oh wow! Oh shit! Way, I guess. Oh. <laughs> that's awesome in, like the Giver images <laughs> and you know all the stuff that you give with a promo because we were looking for a distributor and then we also with each one we put in a Giver toy the Bandai toys which you had to make yourself we had to hire people to glue together all these oh. zonoids and it's a homegrown operation. You got to remember that <laughs> I actually had these made and sent them out to every all the studios and stuff. So they come to the. <laughs> <laughs> it's just ridiculous, right? You know, <laughs> <I don't>. it's, <laughs> it, it gets me because the Giver. It was like I think the movie came out around the time. Maybe was it a few years before Power Rangers? But it really was yeah, like it was before power rangers and actually i could have i could have done power rangers want to do all those i because I, I was society and bride of reanimator were both financed by japanese and and then i even did a i directed and produced a sony playstation game but just at live action part just for japan this is I'm talking about 1990 or something, right? So it's like games were like more like choose your own adventure type things. You would do the, you would choose which way you wanted to go, and then you would play the little game. It was called Unsolved X, and I did that for the Japanese. And then it never got released in this country. It wasn't a game for this country. And then I did, I guess it was Giver was next. Yeah, and Giver was all Japanese. And it was that was when they had a lot of money. And they gave me a ton of, of anime and asked if, 
if they if I could get some kind of deal with them. And that's how Crying Freeman came about because I was delivering Diver to the French distributor. He asked if I had any other anime pro properties. And one of the ones I mentioned was Crying Freeman. And he said, oh, I want to do it. And then I got, I hooked him into making, putting up half the money for Necronomicon so he could test his director, Christoph Gans. And then we moved right into Crying Freeman. So Necronomicon was financed half by Japanese uh, by and the guy who put it together was Takaichise and Takaichise you probably don't know his name but he's the guy who created J-Hor so he's the producer of The Ring Dark Waters, The Grudge, every J-horror yeah. he created. And you'll see his name on the, the American versions too. He did very well. He's a, you know, he's a pretty big time. He's probably the most successful Japanese producer, at least in the U.S. Now he produces in China, which is where the money's coming from now. But he then also, we got, did the same financing for Crime Freeman, which was Sammy Hadida from France and Takechise from Japan. And that was a bigger movie, but there were some complications between Sammy Hadida and the sales agent and or some, I guess with the unions in Canada for Crime Freeman. And so he just decided not to release it at all, which was really a shame because that movie was real. Narratively, Christoph Gans isn't Stuart Gordon, but unlike Stuart Gordon, Christoph Gans is just visually and cinematically really, really interesting. I always thought the best director I could have would have been a cross between Stuart Gordon and Christoph Gans. Stuart <laughs> would tell a story like nobody. He wasn't super cinematic. He's more impressive on stage. The Reanimator musical is almost more impressive than the movie. It's a little postage stamp stage and actors. He just pulls the whole thing off. But Christoph could never do that. He has a hard time telling a story probably. I mean, he tells a story, but he's not, that's not his main. His main thing is, is that he's just like a cinema history junkie. And everything he does is kind of inspired by other movies. So you just get amazing visuals. You know, you're talking about kind of distribution issues and kind of is, and issues with some of these films being unreleased or, or I mean, outright, you know, I guess probably limited territory wise. You know, I feel like the Necronomicon, that was one film. I had a hard time tracking that one down. I think I ended up having to get a Blu-ray copy from Europe. Has that, has that been a difficult, have you guys been trying to work on getting a? No, but I don't, I don't own that. You know, it, it, it's once again, it's, the, it's that was the Takechise Sammy Hadida organized the money. I thought I was going to end up with a third of the equity, but somehow I didn't. Hadida, he was trying to, he got all the French territory. Taka gets all the Japanese. And then you have a sales agent deal with the rest. What happened was that Hadida's, Taka's thing was to, he had his director, Shushuke Kaneko, who went on to do all the Gamera movies mm. and the, the modern Gamera movies, as well as Death Note, which is pretty interesting many other things he's a real kind of work japanese director and christoph went on to do brotherhood of the wolf silent hill he did the silent hill mm -hmm. movie and he just did this huge kind of beauty and the beast french movie but he became a big a big director in france and in, in europe and sammy's 
Samuel Hadida had Metropolitan Film, and it's like the one of the biggest distributors in, in France. And his thing was he was pushing his guy and his movie in France. That's where he, it's kind of like Society. Society came, was released in the U.S. a couple years after it was done because the company that got all the rights and was Medusa Films in UK. So they made it actually was a big was actually quite a real movie in in the UK and in Europe. But the afterthought was in the US because they weren't a US company. And you know the Japanese side of Necronomicon they took care of their territories. The European side did. And in the US they sold it to New Line. New Line didn't bother putting it out theatrically and didn't bother with it much at all. Put out a Blu-ray or any I don't know if there's a DVD of it. There's not. It's only on VHS. It's just like all the Fantastic Factory movies I made in Spain. They were, all of them went to, well, we made the deal with Trimark, but it ended up at Lionsgate Bottom. And so what they did is they didn't do anything theatrical. They shuffled them over to Sci-Fi Channel to pay off their license fee. And then that was it. And so, you know, the thing about movies is, is you don't, it's kind of like you could invent the coolest, the best chocolate bar, the best candy bar ever. And nobody would ever know about it if you didn't get display part at the supermarket as in your as you're walking out. If you don't get any shelf space, you don't have the chocolate bar. And if you don't have any shelf space, you don't have the movie has to be put up from beyond. Why isn't that? Why isn't anything going with that? Because MGM owns. It's just in their library. And if you look up the, you can just go right now at the Library of Congress and look up like from beyond. And look at the copyright notices. See who owned it when. It's all it's all public knowledge. And if you look at that now, From Beyond was produced by Empire Pictures. They were always in financial trouble, and it ended up being a part of Vestron. Then it ended up with I forget the name of this other company. And then they sold. Then it ended up being sold to MGM. And MGM they have no interest in it. What it becomes is real estate for them. So it becomes something that they borrow again. And if they I, I, at least a couple of years ago, I looked up, I was trying to find, the, looking into the sequel rights, and I looked up, you know, the, the listings, the copyright listings, and the last listing for From Beyond was From Beyond and 3,722 other movies as collateral to Citibank or somebody for a loan. Wow. So those things, they're not MGM to release old movies. They've got thousands of them. It costs more for them to have one of their lawyers deal with you about it than they will make. Now, if it, if you owned that movie, you would go, oh, I'm going to put out a Blu-ray with special edition. I'm going to get it in streaming. And you would maybe, maybe you'd make 50 grand or 100 grand or 150 grand. And you'd go, wow, I'm doing great. For a big studio, that's nothing. They try, Lionsgate, they wouldn't even release, I think they finally released Return of Living Dead 3 on Blu-ray and Dagon on Blu-ray. And they only did it under this Vestron label because a couple people at Lionsgate that I know, they're crazy for, for horror movies and they convinced them to put these things out. And otherwise, they're not interested, you know. Their, their business is finding the new Hunger Games, not mm -hmm. 
that's money. That's a business. Kind of blood out of old turnip. Before I even got out to LA, I remember there was this guy that was in the movie business in Florida. And he said, you know, the thing about, well, he he had left Hollywood. And he said, you know, the thing about a movie is that it's like a bag of flour. You can pour out, out, pour out all the flour and then you can shake that bag and there'll be a little more flour coming out. So if you own a movie, you can keep kind of getting a little more flour out of it. But if you're a big studio, that's not your business. You're not about, you're too big to be dealing with such, you know, that, that's not the goal. Your company is not going to survive on old movies. That's kind of the danger because now a lot of, I guess I'm going to almost call them boutique labels, like I'm, the little, the Vestron label. And I and I guess Scream Factory is probably the same way or Code Red or Arrow Films. But I grabbed, I instantly grabbed up the Dagon and uh, Return of Living Dead 3 when they came out on Vestron because I had not seen them and been able to get a hold of these movies for years. So to finally kind of to get to see interviews with people that I kind of thought that nobody cared about, like the actors and, and everything else. But it's kind of sad to know that there isn't any type of benefit to you other than probably conventions, people coming up trying to get signed, signing and everything like that. So that was, I hate to know that's the case. Well, I mean, that's not, no, I don't get any money out of it, but that's not really the point. I mean, we all want to make a living, of course, but there's also, you just hate to see these things not exist anymore. I mean, you just want it to be, I mean, most things, most people don't get any more money if they ever got anything. And Vestron is different from Scream Factory and Arrow. Vestron is just a little, it's a label that Lionsgate has. Scream Factory is Shout Factory. It's mm-hmm. their genre version. All they do is put out these collectible. And Arrow, they're, a, they're an independent company. And they're from, they're a UK company, actually. They do their, kind of like Scream Factory, or, you know, but, um, or Shout Factory, I think is the main company. They're a little different because I think they get more of the right. But it's true. If it's not out there, if it's not on the shelf, it, when Blockbuster was net, when you made a movie, you had to, a lot of times, you the studios, they'd have Blockbuster read the script and tell you how much shelf space you'd get. Because you will sell as much as you get shelf space. Just like any, put a product in the supermarket. If you don't have, if you've got shelf space, you will sell something, you know. And if you don't, you're not going to sell anything. Right. You know? Yeah, it is too bad. And the, the lesson there is own your own movies, which is almost impossible because you have to finance them to own them. You've got a lot of, like most of your credits are a producer's credit. And I guess in my mind, that job is a lot to do with money. Like you're out there trying to sell the product and get backing and everything. But at the end of the day, do you feel more like an artist or like, I don't, I don't, I don't mean that to sound pretentious because like you said before, you have to make a living, but do you feel like an artist, like artistic love for these movies? Well, I have, I think the fun part of making horror movies is that if you can make a movie that will make money in horror, and which means you've got to put certain, it's got to fit a certain kind of product, well, then you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want then because you've got to, it's going to, it's going to go out there. So I take everything very seriously and I get very involved in it, but I would never, I think it's a very kind of a slippery slope to buy into this idea that anybody who directs a movie or makes a movie is an artist. This is like a disease or something, you know. Um, (laughs) Someone makes a short film and now they're an artist. What does that mean, you know? What I liked about movies, it was that you make a movie 
And if people want to see it, you get your money back and then you can do another yeah. one. But we're mm-hmm. all dealing with, I mean, we all first and foremost are trying to keep a roof over our heads and food. And I mean, we have to make a business and anything that if you're making, if you try, if you try to make a living off something you love, whether it's music, movies, hey, food, um, anything, it's going to end up being a job. The minute it goes from being an avocation to a vocation, it's... <laughs> You know, then it becomes a job. Yeah. You know, and it's hard to forget that, you know, and you're dealing with all the problems. You might be just the best cook in the world and just be able to dazzle your family and friends. But you try making a restaurant and you may think, I'm going to do the thing I love. It may be the thing you love, but all of a sudden what you're dealing with mostly are rents and staff and materials and, and taxes and advertising. And you're in business now. And now it's a job. And it's not just, and I think movies is the same way. If you, yeah, it's great to do it, but mostly what you're doing is kind of business. Yeah, right. Also, I mean, it's it's nice to know that at the end of the day, you know, whether or not you're selling a dish or selling a movie, someone consumes it and they go, I love this. I'm coming back for more. So, I mean, at the end of the day, there's a little bit of enjoying knowing what you're selling. People want more of. Well, I think that is the main thing. I think that's what we all love the most. We like that something we do, people appreciate it. They they liked it because you probably, I know I do stuff I really like, you know, I do it and I, somewhere down the line, someone says, oh, I liked it. And that, it, you kind of go, you know, it's like with the Giver. The Giver was a big, it didn't work out the way it I was hoping and the way the investors were hoping. And of course, there's a lot of reasons for that one way or another. And then you kind of look at it like, well, that didn't work. But then 10 years later, somebody says, oh, I love the guy. (laughs) And you go, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At the end, you just start looking at all the bad parts of it. You go, oh, God. You know, when I look at my movies, it's just like most of it is like, oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) but there's always parts of it that i like you know very few of them can i handle all the way through because you just see the stuff that doesn't work and without you don't have to go into why i do i i tend to like overanalyze everything and try to look at it from the point of view of all the elements that are coming together and why something doesn't work or it does work. That's very difficult for people to understand because unless you've been involved in making movies, you couldn't understand it. How would you how could you understand how it works? You know, I used to go to the movies with my kids and afterwards we'd walk out and I say, Well, what do you give it? What's your what's your one to ten? I give it a seven. Why? They didn't want to hear about it. Or they'd say, I give it this and that. And they'd say, but you never like anything, you know. <laughs> and I'd say, no, actually. And I would tell them why, you know, you know, why I liked it or didn't like it. I'd say, no, actually, I, I, can, I can give it a very low grade, but I, I enjoyed it more than you did. Because I, it's kind of like you go to a, an art gallery, you go to a museum, and you look at an artwork. If you don't listen to the, <laughs> to the commentary, if you don't know anything about the period that it was made in and how they made it, what it represents and how it fits into other paintings like it, well, you're going to look at it and say, I like it because it reminds me of my Aunt Dora. That puppy looks like the puppy I used it. But to someone who knows about it, they may say, oh, this is a minor work of so-and-so or whatever, but they enjoy it way more than you do. And if movies are like that, if you, or literature is like that, if you are into it, the more you know about it, the more you enjoy it, more fulfilling it is. 
-hmm. even if you even if it's faulty and a mess or whatever but and if i hadn't made having made movies and i've done it you know the one th thing is is I've, I've most i've almost always been you know kind of independent just because i never i didn't start early and i had no idea what the movie business was so i've done financing producing directing writing every you know even recouping done the deals and i feel like when i watch a movie you read the credits you can often you can read the deal you see what the deal is the deal the financing of a movie really influences what the movie is and sometimes when you look at a movie and it something doesn't work, you can kind of go, wow, that's because of the financing. Not, it's, But people want to believe that a movie like comes fully closed out of the mind of the artist, and then boom, there it is. There's usually a handful of people who are the most influential in how a movie turns out, but there's a lot of other element that go into it. And, you know, I know that there's this idea that if, if the movies, if, if the suits just wouldn't get in the way, you know, and you go, no, no, the suits are the guys who pay for it. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is part of the thing. It's part of the whole part of the whole conglomerate. And they think, oh, it's the director that just made this movie. And you go, you know, my experience, it's more like the witches in Macbeth than it is somebody kind of just sort of having something already, you know, the artist in the garage or something. Bubble, bubble, toil and trouble. Let's see what happens, <laughs> you know. And it could be an actor, could be the, the production designer, it could be a producer. Generally, the director is a big part of it. Generally, a star, a, you know, an actor, a lead actor. But you know, when you get a Tom Cruise movie, he's he's one of the witches, by God. We've been talking about great practical effects throughout the podcast, and Necronomicon is one of the movies that has some of the best practical effects of the 90s. But I got to ask you about Jeffrey Combs' chin in that movie. <laughs> Was that put on to make him look more like Lovecraft? Because I had to squint when I of first course. saw it. <laughs> no, no, this, that was very, very important. When we did the wraparound for Necronomicon, and remember, Necronomicon was actually a financing experiment. So that's where financing comes in. It was, my idea was that I could get half the money from Asia and half the money from Europe and make a movie with three shorts and have everybody, that these guys could put their own director in. The director right. could choose his own thing. It was a way to finance it. It wasn't some concept of like, oh, I just, of course, I was thinking of Tales of Terror the Corman yeah. poem, which I love. But the idea was, let's see what happens if you get an Asian and a European. And then, of course, I would do one because I'll just stick myself in there because <laughs> I put the deal together, right? If you put right. the deal together, you get to have the job you want. <laughs> and, um, and so each one got to choose their own thing. And then I did a wraparound. Now, Brent Friedman, who probably is better known for writing video games like Call of Duty and stuff like that, he did, he was our, the writer that worked with the other writers to make it, make them all kind of fit, have the same sort of Hollywood type of script. And then he and I came up with the wraparound, uh, not that Tales of Terror had a wraparound, but you know, all the, all those kind of compilation movies from from England had them, the Torture Garden and all that kind of stuff. They always had the, you know, the, sometimes the wraparound was the best one, you know? Yeah. But so we came up with, the, you know, the Omniati monks. And <laughs> I thought, 
let's make Lovecraft to be like a hero type guy. I don't think it really, I mean, I don't think we did enough with it, but it was a way in to making the Necronomicon a real thing. And also I was trying to not make it, didn't have to be one period or another. Mm-hmm. We could have it happen in different times. Right. And then having Jeffrey play Lovecraft, I thought, man, if I just have Jeffrey play Lovecraft, it's going to be Herbert West playing Lovecraft. He's a very specific look. His facial characteristics are very specific. And so I purposefully had the effects guys design appliances off of a picture of Lovecraft. So his nose and his chin are trying to make him look like Lovecraft. So that he, and I think it really works because I think when you put a mask on somebody, which is makeup, appliances are kind of a mask. It's like makeup on a woman. You put on makeup, you kind of become somebody else depending on the makeup. And I think with a mask, if you put a, that's why it's fun to go to a mask party. Because everybody <laughs> feels much more free, you know, they're, you kind of, you kind of possess the mask. But with what, with Jeffrey, with that face, somehow he had a gravitas that I don't notice otherwise. I thought it, I thought it really worked. It did. I had to t- double take to make sure it was actually him because I knew he was supposed to be playing the role, but it changes him enough to where you kind of have to squint a little, you yeah. know? And remember, that library location looks great, right? When you go in, it's just like this yeah. incredible right? That's, that's a mortuary. Holy uh, shit. That's oh, wow. A mortuary, that's a mortuary in Compton. It used, to be a big, it used to be a big, it's huge and it's run down now. They let you shoot in it, but there's all those books that you see. Those are just the spines of book flats that you rent and they're covering like the drawers where, you know, the oh wow marble thing. And it smelled like dead flesh in there when we were shooting. Oh, wow. That's a mortuary. (laughs) Don Coscarelli shot one of the um, Phantasm movies there. I don't think in that part of it, but in another part. And I I remember because when we location scouted, I went there because he was shooting and I went to that set and saw that he was shooting at this at this place. And the production designer, Anthony Tremblay who was the production designer. I hired him because he had done Army of Darkness. And he, because he does all trickery stuff. And he did Return of the Living Dead for me. And Return of the Living Dead is like, we have hanging miniatures. We have all kinds of miniature tricks because we couldn't afford, because we didn't have digital and we couldn't afford to build everything. In Necronomicon, I don't, I think he's the one that said, oh, we just put some books up there. And wow, it looked great. It looks great. Yeah, it's blowing <laughs> my mind the, right now. The light coming in and the smoke in the air and those guys with their robes on. <laughs> I mean, it's totally ridiculous, but <laughs> but I like it a lot. Yeah, it looks great. Watching Jeffrey Combs in that film, I kind of wondered, you know, that was the first film I saw him and I had the kind of same effect Justin did where I had to do a double take, but he really is kind of a mini, he's kind of a mini Lon Chaney because I didn't realize, and I'm a big Star Trek fan, but God, he played, he must have played 20, 25 different individual characters throughout all the Star Treks in the late 80s and 90s. So it's just kind of fun to see how effective makeup was and in disguising him. He really does have a face that takes on, uh, literally put on whatever attributes he wants via makeup and appliances. And uh, he really knows how to capture that character's essence. Well, you know, not all actors can handle makeup. I mean, you have to be, you have to be able to do it. You have to have a 
certain type of... I always like Jeffrey's acting because he... I just feel like his move, his his moves are... He thinks them through. You see what he's doing. You know, he doesn't... You know, there's a type of acting that is very naturalistic, that kind of more realistic or something. It doesn't always work best for, I think maybe on, you know, dramas or something, maybe it works much better, but I've always liked the more like expressionistic stuff and, you know, something like Night of the Hunter or something where where things are kind of, they're a little more in bass relief. The actor, you kind of get what they're doing. That the Jeffrey's moves and his expressions and his be- the beats he does, he works them out. And then he does them. You just like it. You know, you just, you get what he's doing. He's, so it's, uh, I, I really, you know, I think he's really good at, at what he does. And like you said, he can, you know, he can take the makeup. And and actually, when he did did this Poe series with the, uh, the Poe, Play, the one-man play that he mm-hmm. did, Stuart and Dennis Paoli, they did the same thing. They put the Poe makeup on, and which actually almost fits him better than the Lovecraft one, because Lovecraft had a very long face, mm-hmm. and Poe had a face that more fit Jeffrey's right. structure, and they and it I, I, it worked well. If you've, I don't know if you saw the play, but it's good. Well, Brian, we've probably kept you way too long. I wanted to ask you, have you seen any good horror movies during the lockdown? Oh, God, you know, you're hitting me in the My mind's in a different place <laughs> let me think <laughs> i'm sure i've seen a few of them but you can tell me which ones you've seen and that'll be better well in terms of just a lockdown i'm going through my head the wretched is good color out of space see, see what it see see, see color out of space color out of space i like that one okay. <laughs> Nick, willie's you... wonderland pardon willie's wonderland i haven't even heard of that one. Oh yeah that's a nick cage movie it's pretty wild willie's... Willie's Wonderland. Well, mm-hmm. Nick Cage, that's no, he's the character. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have you seen Colorado Space? I haven't seen it. No, it's a, it's a Richard Stanley one. Yeah, I would like to get your opinion on that one. Just, I'd like to see what Stewart would have done with that one too. Like it sounds like Richard Stanley is trying to do uh, a Lovecraft cinematic universe, which I, I feel like you guys could have pulled off. Was there ever any thought that 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 could have that could have come about? Like intersection with the Lovecraft movies you guys made? I don't think we ever thought, I mean, between me and Stuart, I don't know what Stuart ever thought, but I don't think that we were really going there. I mean, this is, that's an idea that came out of the Marvel thing. So I think it means something a little different. We wanted to make a bunch of Lovecraft movies, but I don't think we felt like they should all have to exist and cross, you know, that, that the characters needed to cross. I think, it was more more one-offs, you know. I mean, there's a lot of them that we would have liked to have done. I'm not sure that they're... I'm not even sure Lovecraft, all his stuff, fits into one world. <laughs> not, not really. This, no. is a, this is a Marvel thing, and now they're yeah. doing it with DC, and the comic books have always done that. Yeah. I mean, DC well, comics, they were having crossovers all the time, you know. But if you look back at uh, Universal Monsters, I mean, they were doing that, too, way back in the day. Yeah, yeah, because you had the werewolf versus Frankenstein, mm-hmm. you know, Wolfman versus Frankenstein. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny, in the 90s, I tried to convince Don Coscarelli to join in and do a um, Phantasm versus Reanimator movie. <laughs> Don't tell before. me. Don't oh. tell me that. I would have watched that. Oh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't. He just wouldn't consider it. And I said, man, you and I are the only ones. All these franchises are owned by, mm-hmm. you know, companies and studios. Yeah. And we're... 
as far as I knew, I said we're the only ones that own your kind of real horror type of type of franchise. I said, and this was before like Alien versus Predator and all of that. And I and I said, man, this will this will go this will go great. And I even said, you write it, you direct it, and right. I'll just be I'll just be let me you know I just want control over how Herbert West is done. But I thought you know the syringe against the ball that would be great. <laughs> Well, listen, I've got to run, guys. So this was fun. Thank you so much for your podcast. Thank you. Covered all the bases. Yes, that is that was the goal when making it. I needed a name that could cover all my interests. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to wrap it up here. What do you have on the horizon? Where can folks find you? Well, I do. Actually, I do have Instagram. There we go. You should find Brian Houston uh, on Instagram. Brian, it's been a pleasure. Have a great night, my friend. Okay, thanks a lot. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.